So, did any of you guys go to Black Friday uh, last week? The kind of shopping uh, mayhem after Thanksgiving? I didn't, but absolutely not. Well, there was so much news about it. I don't know how it was at where you guys were at, but like here the local news had nothing else to report, you know, with two oh, wars course. going on and the economy crashing. They just were talking about all the great sales, and you almost felt like you had to go shop. Like that's part of the responsibility of being a good consumer is, you know, responding to demands to go and buy a new TV and stuff. Uh, so I went and got um, on my iPhone, like there's applications for Black Friday now and like looked for sales and I didn't really need a TV, but I saw that PetSmart was having a deal on a uh, water fountain for cats. <laughs> nice. nice. Usually, usually priced at seventy nine ninety nine on sale for nineteen ninety nine. Oh my God. And You'd be stupid that, not to buy it. It's like they gave you $60. <laughs> That's literally exactly. what they did. So I, I literally went out to PetSmart, uh, looked around, and uh, I bought the water fountain. And uh, it scares the crap out of my cats. Uh, but they really like the cardboard box that it came in. So they're they're playing currently in it, jumping in and out. So you'll hear the sound of the cardboard box. Uh, still a good deal for $19.99 if we, the cats are getting some enjoyment out of it. We used to have one of those, but you got to watch it because you got to clean them. Yeah, that's what the box said. You really have to clean them, huh? Yeah, because cats... That, you know, it gets disgusting. Like, you know, somehow, like, at least our cats would, like, get food in there and they'd, like, tap around with their paws and, like, play oh, with the yeah, food dude. in the water. Cats and then... always want to play with the water yeah. fountain, man. Yeah, and then they get, they have, like, you know, litter stuck in their paws for whatever reason and then it ends up getting dragged back into the, the fountain and it's just, it's disgusting. Yeah, see, the people at the PetSmart told me this was, like, a really good thing to have, but so far my cats are dehydrated because they're scared of the water supply. <laughs> the thing consumes energy because it's constantly on, and now I have to clean it as well. So I'm not quite sure how this is in advance. And uh, So you're starving your cats and destroying the environment, <laughs> but it was a great deal. <laughs> but it was, you know, he had to pay so little to starve his cats and destroy the environment, and that is progress. <laughs> we, but if we you did, paid we got... $20 more, you would have got the self-cleaning one. We we got something on on Black Friday too. We actually got a new TV. So, Arturo, oh, you, did. you didn't get one, but but we did. Yeah. Was it one of those? Uh, what do you call those flat screen TV? Yes, it's HD. a flat, flat screen, screen television. <laughs> <laughs> do they make non flat screen televisions anymore? Like, is that even an option? Uh, I don't. I don't know why. You have to really they're... search to find a non flat screen. I have one in my 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 garage. Um, but did you buy you, it if recently? If you want one. No, like 10 years ago, which is like yeah. the last time we got a TV. But see, well, yeah. this one, we, we've gone sans TV for like two and a half years now. Hey, like we canceled cable, moved the, you know, moved the TV out of the living room and everything. everything Trying we to watched, get off the grid, man. Yeah, man. Well, except, except we're, everything we watch is through the computer and on the internet. So we have like a little 20-inch monitor that's been our TV for the last couple of years. Um, but we finally like broke down and, and actually bought a TV. So... Did you guys know that if you buy a $20 antenna, you can hook it up to your TV and get all the network stations, like in 1080p HD? Yes. Yeah. And you also get those weird, like, half stations. What do you mean? What? Well, I thought when we went digital, you can't get stuff off an antenna. Do you get, like, a special? No, no it's a digital antenna. antenna. You get the, yeah, you get the digital antenna, but then you get, like, I don't know, my parents and my brother get it because they still use antennas because they live in the 18th century. But, like, uh, you get, like... 
you get like channel five, which is like, you know, ABC or whatever. And then you get channel 5.2, which is like, some of them is just like weather, but some of them are like weird old, like almost like UHF channels, just like weird (laughs) old reruns. And the best, the one at my parents' place, the old channel station also reruns old commercials too. Like I'm not really certain what their business model is, but uh, <laughs> isn't that what YouTube's it's pretty for? awesome? Because they're like the '60s and '70s commercials too. In between the episodes, they're pretty entertaining. Yeah, you get all the networks though, and like it's yeah. it's better quality than you actually get through most, um, you know, regular cable companies. Actually, it's actually higher quality if you get it. Like if you get the station, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you either get it or you don't, and if you get it, it's great. So we get most of them, and like a lot of you know pbs channels with like cartoons that you know our daughter can watch and stuff like that and on the internet you know we've got it we basically hooked them it's basically the tv is basically just a second monitor to our computer so if we want to watch anything that's not on live tv there's you know hulu and and netflix i think we pay like ten dollars a month for netflix or something like that and we have way more tv or movies than we could ever actually hope to to watch and you know it's it's kind of stressful you know, you've got the, the Hulu queue and your Netflix queue, and it, and sometimes it just gets unbearable, the responsibility of watching all this stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> the problems of the I don't know if you guys worry about this, too. <laughs> there's, there's all sorts of stories now about trying to destroy other people's Netflix queues as ways to get back at them or to, to pre- play practical jokes. What do you what like like putting embarrassing movies in, at the top of yeah, them or something? Yeah, precisely. Mm. Well, I, I saw one yesterday, which is probably fake, but uh, someone was breaking up with their girlfriend, so they spent a long time messing with the Netflix queue to show all movies about people cheating, or with suggestive titles about her cheating, and then left that. There's people who yeah, it's you know, dedicated. This is why I have people my people always play like the taste game with the Netflix queue, and you know they'll have a bunch of highfalutin documentaries and foreign films that they're never going to watch, but they're there to show that they might watch them at some point and they know that they exist. I just read about this. There was some psychologist did a study on this, like looking at people's Netflix queues. And it was about exactly that. Like everyone has like, you know, these obscure art films at like number 10 and they just stay there. And then it's constantly like moving up like the latest season of like How I Met Your Mother or something to the top. And that's what people actually watch. But like they keep it on the queue, you know, to like there's an intent that someday they will watch this. But messing with people's queues. That's see, that's why I set my Netflix password to a 40 character completely random string, you know, and I just memorize it. It's not a big deal. Whatever H lowercase H two five four X C. No, bastard. But anyway, I I think, uh. It's interesting because I, you know, you guys, you guys have cable? Oh, yeah. I paid $35 for a really crappy cable, which I think sounds pretty much what you guys are getting. Like, we have some ABC affiliate and then, like, some weird old movie channel that, like, tonight, Batman Returns and classic films. Do you get the random, the random music video channel? Me? It's usually, Uh, it's usually part of Antenna if you get Oh, yeah, my parents get that one. That one's crazy. Yeah. But they're not they're, like music videos of anyone you've ever heard of. It's it's yeah, it'll be old stuff that no one's ever heard of to new stuff no one's ever heard of to a Christmas song. It's the most random thing. It's is it, is it like Wayne and Garth in their basement recording a video or something? No, it's like almost video kinda. jukebox from 1993, but yeah, it still exists. Huh? Did you get a good deal on the TV, John? I mean, I you know. actually went out and like did yeah. How did you line? get a TV on Black Friday if you did, said you didn't go out shopping for Black Friday? Well, I, I have a wife. See. <laughs> 
So she went out. Yes, wow. I want that audio wow. clip isolated and ready to use. I know that's going to sound horrible, but that's why I said, you know, because I, I apparently your wife that works like eighty hours a week as a nurse and. Hey, Actually, John has a part-time job, okay? Might I, all right, let me hey, add. Baby, go get me this TV. <laughs> I, I, I did not TV. want her to actually go shopping on Black Friday because I knew it would be a pain because she had to get up at like 5 a.m. And that was like not made her miss the, the early crowd, actually. I know stores opened at 3 o'clock in the morning here, which I thought was just ridiculous. No, the most ridiculous, I saw there was like some ad for Walmart or something and so their sales started at 5 a.m. but they were open all night and so they had these commercials that were like come at midnight and shop while you wait for the 5 a.m. opening of the sale or something like that uh that's absurd isn't that sad that that's like a tradition now in, in people's houses or homes you know like we're gonna go and wait in line at Walmart at three o'clock in the morning or Best Buy. You know, like you're such a cynic, Arturo, to go buy gifts for people they love to express how much and how glad they are that they're What's in their sadder lives. What's is when people do it here because not only are they waiting out in line at three a.m. in the morning, it's like five degrees below zero, and they're waiting in line for three hours at five in the morning. Like that's an extra level of sad. It's. It, I think it, they usually but, start earlier than that, even. Like, with, oh yeah. Along with the 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 sadness of people spending all their time and money doing this, there's also it's it's ninety five percent of all the feel good fluff stories for the local news because there's always someone who gets like hurt and then someone helps them or someone who gets something stolen out of their car and then people will donate the same items or, or things like this. So it keeps the whole Christmas uh, news news world running for for a good month and a half. Why are you launching this war on Christmas, Chris? Because Christmas is going to pay for what it did to my family. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you guys see the I, the, the billboard that some atheist group atheist put up that yeah. was like, uh, I, I can't even remember what it, what the actual Something what about say. it being a myth. It says you know it's a myth. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and like the spokesperson for the organization was like, you know, every Christmas we get accused of having a war on Christmas. So we thought we'd sort of show what that might actually look like just a little bit this year. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, so it said like Christmas is a myth or Santa Claus. Well, it showed like the like three wise men heading towards a manger with a star in the sky, and it says like you know it's a myth, and then it's like this season celebrate reason or something witty <laughs> and rhyming like that. Ah, interesting. The reason for the season. Well, that gives something Bill O'Reilly to complain about, you know. Oh God, yeah. Well, the funniest thing was I, I actually just saw last night they were talking about it on Colbert. And so, like, the Catholic League, which is, I should point out, not <laughs> oh, affiliated with the Catholic Church in any way, um, took out a billboard, like, near that billboard that says, like, come on, you know it's true or something, and has a picture of Jesus on it. Um, but what's funnier, because uh, in a press release, the Catholic League described it as a counterpunch, and Colbert was like, yeah, just like it says in the Bible, if they strike you on your left cheek, <laughs> counterpunch! <laughs> Catholic League. I thought it was going to be some like a, a, I don't know how you'd represent an atheist stereotypically, but someone burning in hell and saying, "Come on, you know it's true." Yeah, that would have been a lot better. That would have been more more uh, typical of the Catholic. We're groups. about two or three billboards away from that, so we're still waiting for the counter counter punch. The billboard fight has only begun. Yeah, yeah. This is just maybe the like the you know whatever else is it being advertised like Bud Select also somehow thinks they're involved in this war with their <laughs> billboard that's near them. 
Never mind. Come on, you know it's refreshing. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So I'm not going to buy gifts this year. I've decided. Um, the kids get gifts, like the little kids in the family, you know, like nephews and nieces. But everybody else, I'm just going to micro lend um, stuff. I started doing that a couple like years Akiva. ago. Are you going to like send us your yeah. spare change or something? Yeah, well, it works on multiple <laughs> levels. It's a nice thing, but you also don't need to give a whole lot, you know, like twenty dollars. That's a gift. So you yeah, spend you all this effort to the human fund. Yeah, you spent all this effort getting a gift for your cats on Black Friday, <laughs> and then instead of saying, you know, I, I'm I, I I have no ideas for what to get you, and I would get you money, but I don't really want to spend the money. You're gonna call it micro lending. <laughs> that's yes, that's very American. Okay. I did go to the toy store and looked around for toys, but like my nephews and nieces, they're four and five, and there's just a lot of generic toys, and they always like, yeah. like something specific, you know. And it's, it's a rough situation. Changing. Yeah, but yeah, this year there's a lot of like mini laptops. Um, one thing I was thinking about getting, but then I thought it might not be good, is this uh, spy watch for my uh, seven year old niece. Where you can actually record videos on it, and you're like Whoa, a spy. Whoa, that's awesome! That. Yeah, dude, I'll <laughs> yeah, take it's it. Only, it's only ten dollars, and it can record up to two hours, and it's got a little camera and a little screen. That's insane! And, I want yeah, that. Can, <laughs> I know, but then I thought, like, maybe this could actually get her in trouble. You know, she goes to school <laughs> and starts. Like, Isn't that crazy? That like what was like science fiction like forty years ago is now available for like fifteen a bucks $10 for your niece children's at toys. toys. Us. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, like, you know, we used to go, you know, when we were kids, we had, like, little toys that looked like a laptop that, you know, might have said sounds. But it's, like, literally now laptops that you can get at the toy store and can access the Internet and, you know, and YouTube and, you know, all that crazy stuff. Seriously? So, Real laptops? Yeah. I want to say like, really quick for a podcast uh, that consists sorry. solely of people in their late 20s and or early 30s, we seem to have a lot of subjects that come back to the kids these days. <laughs> Can you imagine what's going on? Um, yeah. Sorry, I was no, just struck by that bad. irony. No, I think it's my life course uh, research that I've been reading a lot. No, I mean, I totally agree. I think it's insane that there are, like, laptops you can buy for kids. I just think it's funny that we all sound like a pack of, like, grumpy elderly gents at the coffee shop. <laughs> when we're, you know. The big Christmas gift to the future is just going to be launch codes. Yeah. <laughs> Here, son. Have a rocket. So what's up with Girl Talk? Never been to a sleepover? Oh, sorry. Hey, oh. Uh, Hi, I'm Chris Hansen. <laughs> How do you follow that with a real comment? Jesse, I, aren't, I, aren't you a fan? See, apparently, Pappas hates it, and I want to hear this because I, uh, I'm. Are you hating it's not the best way to introduce it, though? No, that's the great way to introduce it. Okay, you gotta have conflict. Man. Conflict is what sells, right? Jesse, tell us, <laughs> tell people who don't know what Girl Talk is, what it is. I had not heard of this until like last week, so. Um, for the cool kids, uh, girl talk is it's, you know, I'm not like the most well-informed guy with my ear to the underground, but, uh, a, a DJ, as far as I could tell, who has released his, what is this third or fourth Pappas mixtape? Um, or at least prominent Yeah, mixtape, something like that. Yeah. Um, in which he mixes together popular songs to, uh, amusing and interesting ends. Um, and I think it's really inventive and clever and well done. Uh, this like some of the songs he chooses to pair up are both interesting, just in the juxtaposition of two entirely 
like different songs, but also sometimes in clever ways. Like uh, like what? So like, do you have an example? Like, uh, you know, I knew that was exactly what was coming, <laughs> so I was trying to think of one. That's why I was padding. I'll tell you what. We'll, we'll edit this. Vampire. We'll cut in right now with like a quick twenty second sample. In the fields of bodies burning. Get out of the way. We can sample it all we want because of the copyrights. Exactly, it's already illegal. Hence illegal. We can just have it underneath the entire episode. Yeah, that wouldn't be distracting. That's my... Actually, that's, you know... Not if you knew how to mix. So I'd never heard of this before, right? So uh, mm-hmm. I all of a sudden, like, on, on Facebook, I see, like, everybody talking about girl talk, and I'm like, what what's going on here? It's the girl you know? talk of the town. Yeah, so I, I see it's free, and I download it, of course, because it's free, and I laugh really hard for the first three or four minutes, and then about 20 minutes in, I want to just, like, throw my computer across the room. So I don't know. Well, that's because he starts with a, a classic rock riff, so he had enough to get Schmoida interested, but then it transitions away to this. Yeah, so like, okay, music. so like he takes uh, a, <laughs> it's um, shoot, what song is it? I'm completely. Dude, it's uh, uh, War Pigs. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's it. He starts with War Pigs and then like intersperses some like rap song. Do you know what, you know what song it is? Ludacris, man, Ludacris. come on. See, I... and so like they, it's a mashup basically. It's like a, it's like a, an hour long mashup. Oh, uh, it's longer than an hour. I think it's like close to ninety minutes. In, in like he like he breaks it up into maybe. songs, so I think there are like twelve songs. But really, the songs are all like thirty seconds long. So it's like a mashup of two or three, like a pop song and a rap song for like thirty seconds, and then it transitions to something else, like yeah. nonstop for an hour. That's basically but, what it's like, right? Yeah, it's a it's like a DJ set. You know, it's not like a album album like you think of them. Yeah, see, I tried listening to it because I was reading on Facebook all these people working to it. You know, like, oh, oh yeah, I've been I working all day to, to it. Work to it. So I, so I tried it, and I just, you know, it's just a little too schizophrenic for me. Like, I laughed and thought a lot of it was funny. Yeah, um, definitely. Like, okay, like, okay, cool. You two is with or without you's coming on, and then there's, see, I don't know any of the rap songs. Like, I just, it's just, so it's you two, and then some rap, and then uh, that might be interfering with your general enjoyment of it. (laughs) No, it's not that. It's it's not that I like any given thirty seconds of it. I can appreciate, but I like songs, you know. So every time I started to like enjoy it, it would move on to something else, you know. Maybe out of our schizophrenic young internet age, man. Maybe that's it. You know, maybe, you know. I don't Insert, know. like, New York Times scare column about the ADD of kids these days. They can't even listen to a traditional album properly. They have to listen to seven songs at once and only for 30 seconds. Exactly. Okay, so uh, here, I'll, I'll try to re- reestablish some cred, right? So I did actually buy one album this <laughs> You just week. talk about saying, oh, cool, a no, Sting th- song is coming on, so... <laughs> You've got quite a whole dig out of it. But, but the last album I bought, to, to speak to Jesse's point about the kids not listening to a full album, I actually bought the, the new Kanye West album. Ooh, really? Yeah. And it's an actual album. And that's why I, I like it. Like, it's really ambitious. It's Yeah, that's what I've heard. Crazy amounts of different styles of music mixed together. But it's a real album, like, from start to finish. Like, I'm a big fan of albums. All my favorite bands make albums, you know, where the songs tie together and there's, you know, sort of over... I, I, I like that. So I can appreciate that. So it's not like a musical style thing. It's just, uh, it's just the 
you know, 80. But I don't know if that's, if that's your sense though, like I think there's, I mean, there's not a coherent theme running through the whole recording, but it's like an album proper in that it's like not, none of the individual tracks on it are meant to be listened to. Oh, I agree. In fact, if you go to download it, it encourages you to download the, the version where it's all run together in one track. Yeah. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, that got me excited. I was like, that's that's the kind of stuff I like, you know? Like the, uh, you know, the Prince album, Love Sexy? It's one track. I like that. That's cool. See, I'm, I'm like throwing out, you know. You're, uh, you're getting your cred back slowly I know. Surely. I'm working on it. I'm working <laughs> on it. I mean, I know you're all Minnesotans, so I thought if I threw in that I like Prince, that might help. I don't know. Um, speaking of... for me. Kanye West is like basically a new version of Prince. Like it's all sex and religion. Wants like like dirty sex stuff mixed that's in with like point. moralizing. Like that's the basic narrative arc of the whole album, which is very much Prince's thing, right? To some yeah. extent. To a large but extent. But Prince also took a like he was the next step forward when he broke out for funk music. And Kanye I don't think has been the next step forward for any type of music. Just to just to create more arguments to arbitrarily defend Prince, um, dude. No defense of Prince is no. arbitrary. <laughs> no, I, true, I, I mean, true. I okay. Having having owned and listened to one, complete, I see what you're saying, though. Yeah, but I mean, I, I meant in terms of like lyrical content, like sure, clearly yeah. what the guy is obsessed with. Like Prince well, and him could have some deep conversations. Who doesn't talk about religion and sex? I mean, every Catholic person who's ever picked up a guitar has done that. So. Man, we're getting hate mail for sure this week. <laughs> That's a classic mark of of Catholic culture, yeah. at least in America. It's true, it's, yeah. No, and uh, the thing about Prince is Prince is a musical genius. Like everything on his album is is him. And the thing I love about Prince is he'll have like you know some kind of song as a guitar player, right? Like it'll be some song where you would not expect a guitar solo, and then bam, he whips in this wicked guitar solo. You know, oh, yeah. there's still a big debate. People refuse to accept him as a good guitarist because they think of him for these more funky pop songs. How can you who are these songs? people you speak of? Yeah. I've never met anyone who says that about Prince. I've heard I've of com- people that say such things. <laughs> I've seen them. Blasphemy. I've heard of, never met. But anyway, back to the, the the point about uh, about girl talk. So, like, I brought this up saying we could talk about this because this is an interesting example on a number. Of, there's the sort of copyright, you know, mashup culture angle of it that may or may not be worth talking about. And then, Chris, Chris, you you, you hinted that you have a uh, you have some some kind of beef with this. Beef, this Mr. Yeah. Girl Talk. It's true. It's true. Johnny Girl Talk and the Girl Talkers. I prefer to uh, to let you all make your arguments and then I'll just come in and call you all suckers and show you what time it is, as they say. Well, I mean, I don't have, like, a lot of great arguments as to it being, like, you know, a groundbreaking work of, like, all of Western music or something. I just think it's, a, like, it's a good album. Like, it's solidly put together. It's entertaining. It plays well. You could shake a groove thing to it, or you could just listen to it while you do work, you know? I mean, it's got most everything I'm looking for in that type of album. If you can shake a groove thing to it, but you can also do work to it, it's not shaking a groove thing enough. I don't think you understand how I do work. <laughs> fair enough that's why i have a standing desk <laughs> so here here's an interesting. Te- tear here- it apart chris like yeah, you are yeah. the only person i've yet met who is not only not enthused about the album but actually appears to have some sort of problem with it so i want to hear this well it's one of those issues where it's not necessarily all about the artist themselves oh. or the music it's also about the way it's been covered and the fans 
but that's not that uncommon for for that to be the situation. Um, so it's always presented as, despite what you just said, Jesse, it's always presented as really groundbreaking that he's doing things that no one else is doing or no one else has thought about, which is not only untrue, but sort of offensive if you look at the history of people doing those things. So, you know, he, he has, excuse me, more explicitly gone after the, the whole copyright angle that he doesn't clear any of the samples and doesn't care where they come from. He's going to use them no matter what. There's a bunch of people who do that. They just didn't manage to get the popularity. And if you look at some of the interviews he's given, he doesn't really care about that issue that much either. It's the fact that the guy who runs inter- uh, what is it, illegal art, mm-hmm. is the label that puts the stuff out. Heard his stuff and wanted to put it out, and and the label guy is the one that's really pushing that anti copyright stance. It's not really the artist that much. But look to the history of hip hop, and you can see all the same stuff. Hip hop didn't care where it got its samples from, at least as far as the copyrights, for a long time until a couple of artists in the the early '90s got financially destroyed when George Clinton and James Brown said, you know, I think we should be getting some money off of this. Um, the, the idea of mashing things up it has been popular for maybe what, like five or six years now. Um, but comes from a whole, I mean, people have been doing that forever and I think doing it better. Um, the, the thing that girl talk has is, is famous for is something you guys are already talking about that he only really holds the mashup for 30, 40 seconds before he moves on to something else. Um, which to someone who, you know, a lot of my friends who are, who are professional DJs think is a sign of laziness and a lack of skill rather than going for a particular aesthetic or being very skilled. So you're telling me that the thing that I didn't like about it is not symptomatic of the genre. It's completely symptomatic of this one, this one guy. It depends on how you cut the genre. I mean, there's a lot of people who do it like Girl Talk does it and do it really quick and kind of keep moving. There's a lot of people who do mashups who do it for the duration of the songs that they're mashing up or who much longer or, you know, at least two minutes, I would say. Though I got to say, like, I mean, I pretty much agree with all the criticisms you just laid out there. But those aren't I mean, most of those aren't so much criticisms of Girl Talk. Or this no, album, I said it's it's more know. the aura that's surrounded it. Yeah. We talked about that um, before too. Like, I mean, we keep coming back to this when we talk about culture and music in general. Is whether it's like TV or music or whatever. It's uh, as sociologists, we tend to be kind of buzzkills because people really love music or they love some show or some book because they love the characters. And then we come and talk about, oh, well, it's all about the context in which it's made and the, the sort of reception and the way people who enjoy it get into it in a certain ways. And, and it's like, no, you're, you're completely like taking out what matters, right? Yeah, oh, we're professional haters, or at least I am. <laughs> and I wear that proudly. I want some sort of like business card that says that. It, one, one other like slightly uh, related case that came up for me this last week. Did you guys see the thing that was going around on um, Gimme Shelter uh, by the Rolling Stones where they took and isolated all the different tracks? Did you guys see this? I didn't. No, I saw it linked to several different places. But basically, I'd someone, like to have the tracked version. Yeah, some. Well, that's the thing is, I don't. How, do you know how they do that? Like, how does Girl Talk get all those indiv- or DJs or whatever? How do they get like the individual vocals out? Like, is there software that does that? I assume there's software that does it. It, the software that I've used that does it doesn't do it. it it's not perfect. Yeah. You can still hear a ghost of the vocal track yeah, in the background. Yeah. But if you're mixing stuff over top, you can usually take care of it. Yeah. You, some just exist out there. I have one for Superstition by Stevie Wonder that yeah. is something of a prize possession. Well, it's um, funny. I've seen a bunch of those, and it's always uh, – it's a lot of times it's like 
Guitar Hero came out. <laughs> like that was like a, somehow they like <laughs> leaked the individual tracks because they were remixing it for that or something. But anyway, yeah. it was Gimme Shelter, right? And and it was clearly using software because like there was the guitar part and then you could hear the echo of the other stuff in the background. But then again, if they recorded that live, that might have just been yeah, echo from, the, just from be. the mic too or whatever, not echo. But anyway, um, it was, you know, Keith Richards' guitar parts, the bass, the drums, the vocals, you know, Jagger and the, the guest singer, I forgot her name. And... Uh, you know, it was fascinating, you know, because you listen to that song, which is, um, I mean, I'm not a huge Rolling Stones fan, but you got to love that song. Oh, and they they song. definitely have a, like a vibe together. And then to break it down into the individual components and hear like, wow, that's what Keith Richards, you know, I have, a, I have a sense of what the guitar is like in that song. And then when you hear just the guitar, that's not it, you know? Um, that whole, like how the, how they, they come together to create something bigger than themselves. Like it's a, it's a learning experience, right? It's mm-hmm. as, as a, you know, musician or just someone interested in music. And it, and it got taken down, of course, like right away because of copyright complaints by, you know, whoever owns that song. Um, but I mean, it just kind of, it's in the same sort of ballpark as this stuff where, uh, there's people, it's not like the guy who, who said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sit down and isolate all the tracks and give me shelter is, is like not helping the Rolling Stones in the big picture, you know? <laughs> Well, it's kind of like um, the Grey album a couple years ago. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's another familiar example. with that. When uh, the Beatles freaked out, and McCartney, I think, tried to stop it for using the White album. Of course he did. But Jay Z with the Black album just said, "Well, quietly didn't say anything and let it happen because it also drove up sales for his record, and it also brought a lot more attention to his record. So he just kind of let it happen. Did it actually drive up sales for his record? I don't know the extent to which it did." I don't know if it was measured, but people were saying that it wasn't hurting him because he you can get the acapellas from him uh, or at least from whoever's selling his stuff. Uh, so you could do it yourself. And, and there were tons of albums after the Grey album came out that did the same thing, but with different, you know, replace the Beatles with whatever other artist you wanted to replace it with. So some people probably stole those, but a decent amount of people probably tracked down Jay-Z singles and got the acapellas or the instrumentals. So. So Arturo, do you know what Girl Talk is now? I I do. I was actually listening to it as you guys were talking. It's good background <laughs> music. As Chris was like dissing on it, I was like, yeah, it's kind yeah. of fun. And for me, it's it's more about. I mean, I've got nothing against the artist himself. If I could make a living doing that, I definitely would. Um, and I wanted to at several times in my college life. Um, it's oh, more you're just bitter. That's what it is. It, yeah, it, it, the, you can't be a professional today. hater without a little bit of that. But also, yeah, I way to put the, it out there. The man. way people have appreciated it and and the kind of whole scene that it's created are, are what I have a problem with. And and it it falls along several different dimensions. One is just kind of a difference in the way people appreciate. Uh, I'll restate that it's it's the way people always talk about the future of music, or a new sound that's taking over. Because as John was saying, sociologists always put stuff into context, and it's never really a new sound. It's just a different see, sound for a particular thing. Like, context. Any cultural practice is is always adapted and co-opted by other groups. Right. And I understand that there is a lineage issue, but I feel sometimes it gets a little bit... Like people reify that like there's a there's a authentic version of this cultural practice... Um, and Precisely. people need to acknowledge it, you know, and I understand where that need comes from, but at the same time, almost every single cultural practice comes from 
an adaptation of something else and a co-optation of something else. And, and, you know, this guy is getting traction, whereas other people didn't get traction who were doing the same thing, you know, a couple of years back. Well, yeah. Because it's, it's getting reified context, on both right? sides though. The, the, I think, because... the, I think the distinction about, sorry, about our, our current time is that it's happening. The reification is happening legally, you know, like for example, like Led Zeppelin, right? Early Led Zeppelin albums completely stole entire riffs and lyrics from traditional yep. blues songs. Right. And they, you know, I mean, they've gotten some slack for it, but it's not like they've ever been sued as far as I know for it or anything like that. They but, did settle out of court with Willie Dixon for a whole lot of love, yeah. Okay, so I just knew it, it you know. It, I think. But if they were doing that today, now they're, you know, like now it's like, uh, but because the music they were borrowing was sort of before the modern copyright era, they kind of got away with it. Whereas now if someone were doing that, you know, it would be a huge legal hassle and they'd have to make sure that they properly credited everything even though it i mean the point is that the the it's it's, it's a, the, the legal issue is sort of driving this cultural reification of you know like what you know uh the the original source of art because the original source of art you can trace it all the way back you know right let's think yeah it's... in this case you can explicitly because you can hear it in uh the music itself but i, I was just saying more like the style you know he because it seems what I heard from Chris's critique is that, like, this guy wasn't the first guy to kind of ignore copyright issues and mix it in together. So there's this kind of stylistic thing that he's doing that it's also in of itself not new or original, but it's being framed as new and original. And I and, and I think that's a little bit of, you know, the myth-making that goes on with any time a new cultural practice is finally acknowledged. And, and I, this guy maybe is getting, um, you know... Uh, much more leverage on it than previous people you know anytime something gets adapted there must be a, a, you know whole generations of people who were probably doing the same thing earlier but the timing wasn't right sure um but it's the way I, mean, it's I think that's been, kind of a sociological perspective as well I'm because sorry, Chris? it's the way it's been reified i like your use of that term because there's there's people who will talk about where it comes from and respecting the authentic or at least constructed authentic you know context where he gets his source material versus people who Jesse was kind of alluding this um, alluding to this before when he talked about girl talk as you know the music for the kids today which you know which is the, the internet ADD culture and stuff like that people make that argument very seriously and reify it as he's successfully broken with those traditions and pre- presented something so perfect for the current context that this is the way things are going to go from here or, or this is very interesting and and both of those perspectives are wrong but it's it's a it's a question of how they both maintain a presence in the in the discourse about the album to there's there's kind of make a, that sound a little fancy than it needs to be. There's kind of a social movement angle to this too, how this happens where Definitely. um I mean in this case it's sort of the um you know, I don't know, free culture movement, if you wanna call them that, anti sort of copyright movement or whatever, where you know, just like sort of the social movement, social civil rights movement sort of um it's not like not to like belittle it, but there was an orchestrated effort behind making Rosa Parks who who she became, right? I mean, right. like this is like classic sociology stuff, right? It's not like she was just some random person who said, "I'm not going to get out of the seat." Like people had done that wasn't before. The first, people yeah, hadn't heard the first of it. Person. <laughs> but like, yeah. there's a way of taking one you know case and trying to build sort of a moon run. And then in this case, it's you know sort of well, girl talk. The music's accessible and fun, and people seem to like it. And then there are sort of entrepreneurs taking it, like the guy who runs this, you know, uh, what's the name of the what's the name of the company? It's not 
Is Illegal it a record, art. Is it a record company? Is that a, that's like a? Is it's it, sort of. I mean, it's it's a record company. It's a website. It's a. They've had art exhibitions about yeah. the material. Yeah. So like, there's you know people invested actors who like uh, take these pieces of art and or actions and then try to make them into you know contributing to their particular movement or cause. Yeah, and then there's there's a large amount of free riders <laughs> on it as well because. You know, as I said before, the, the um, I forget his name. Is it Adam something? The guy who's actually Girl Talk? I never remember it. Yeah. This is why we have the internet. Yeah, I someone like the looked that up. picture that comes up. Um, he was never really a hardcore illegal art, you know, anti-copyright person. It's just that's someone who decided to put out his record, and he thought, <laughs> okay, fine, let's do that. If you look at his history, he was like a, a an indie scenester art rock kid who then all of a sudden figured out that dance music was fun and did it in a, did dance. He's, 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 to connect him back to previous copyright um, warriors is kind of a misnomer. If you want to really talk about the big model that Girl Talk is using, it's Daft Punk. Because Daft Punk... Well, see, that, that, that's <laughs> the interesting thing for me, though, about cultural adaptation, is like, regardless of people's motives... Um, you know, he's picking it up because it just sounds good. But the reason why it sounds good is because he's been acclimated to a certain genre of music already. Um, and he's maybe not as explicit about what he's doing and why he's doing it. He's just doing it because he thinks it sounds good. But that right. notion of it sounding good, that taste, not the Brian Bore do, I mean, but that's, there's kind of a structural reason why that sound is sounding good in that particular time, you know? Um, and I don't know, like, I, I think this this tension about what is, if is he paying homage to the right people? Is he coming from the right group of people? Does he belong? I think those discussions are interesting, but I think they also need to be kind of critiqued as yeah. a bit of myth-making. Because, of... yeah, his aesthetic is not in praising previous artists that he samples. Okay. It's not a, I don't, I've never read it as, oh, I'm going to use these records to really, you know, open people's eyes to the source material. That's the way hip hop did it, which was, you know, we're going to reclaim, you know, James Brown as our own, or we're going to connect our music to previous eras of black music in America. And it was not in all cases, but in some cases, very specific moves for him. As you said before, it's just what sounds good. It's what's going to get people moving on the dance floor. Um, and that motivates his sample source collection because the stuff that he's sampling most, which is Southern hip hop is not, it doesn't have a lot of social stature behind it. Like it's a dominant sound in hip hop today, but it's also one of the most hated forms of hip hop today. It, it, you know, it's, it's, it's seen as the most disposable form of rap music. And that's the kind of stuff that he cuts up and puts over everything. Um, mm. And the stuff that he, he uses to put underneath and on top of that is, you know, he'll get, he'll, he'll draw samples from all over the place, not because they should be praised, but because, the audience is going to know what they are and they're going to be more interested in him doing what he's doing with that music. And being yeah. sort of funny about it, you know, like taking some like sort of, uh, you know, like, like candy coated pop from the eighties and then putting a really angry rap lyric over it. It's or funny. like putting yeah, but Rihanna over Fugazi. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But th th he's, he's carved out this particular niche, which is, which is him, which is people who had deep roots in the indie scene 
but are now interested in pop music and a more pop lifestyle. So you have an audience that's going to know not they're, they're not only going to recognize Rihanna, but they're going to recognize Fugazi. And that's what makes it kind of interesting. But then I sort of am a big hater on the current state of indie, so I can go off on another rant about that. But that's the, the, the niche that Girl Talk occupies. It's being able to bridge the most disposable of pop music with indie stuff that indie people take seriously. Speaking of like uh, source material, though, I got to, lo- you know, since I mentioned I've been listening to this Kanye West album, I got to love the fact that he built a song around a King Crimson song. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. See, and that's that's the nature of his success right there. And if you listen to all the other super hipster DJs and DJ crews, Brooklyn is full of them, as one might expect. But in L.A. and any scene, you're going to find people doing this exact same thing. And they're doing it because Girl Talk got famous doing it, but they were also doing it before Girl Talk got famous doing it. Like you, you can track back to particular records that are released with, you know, best of the 80s um you know, instrumentals because everyone was mixing over those synth hooks. Like stuff not... that stuff that got on Guitar Hero is now popular. Yeah, I've got a bunch of records that are, you know, you know, greatest hits of the eighties but instrumental versions. And they've been existing since the early nineties. Cause who doesn't want new shoes all over the place? <laughs> that's the big song that's that's emerged as the hero of the entire Girl Talk movement. New shoes I can't wait. I don't even know which one that is. Yeah, I don't know which one that is either. I'm not up on You'll that recognize either. it. Just YouTube, you'll recognize it instantly. All right, we'll, we'll go on YouTube. If you look at the merchandise offer for Girl Talk right now at the Illegal Art website, um, there's the, the very telling t-shirt. What What's the web? Is it Illegal Art? Uh, illegal-art.net. Ah. Ooh. A dash, and, and one of the T-shirts you could get is it says "I'm not a DJ" in huge letters, and then "Girl Talk" in smaller letters at the bottom. And this is one of the other things that's part of the contemporary quote-unquote indie scene is uh, to take the position without actually taking the position. So, if you can't call "Girl Talk" a DJ, then you can you can ignore all the some of the arguments that I'm making about him that delegitimates him in terms of being a DJ because he can claim to be something else. So what is he if not a DJ? That's what I wonder. Um, like, what would he claim to be? He wouldn't claim to be. He would just disagree with others' claims to be. He would claim to be girl talk, and that's it. Oh, God, I can't stand <laughs> that kind of stuff. Oh, I'm just assuming, but that's, that's how it goes. Because there's a risk in claiming the identity, but there's no risk in not claiming the identity and making fun of someone else for claiming the identity. That's fair. It's kind of the same problem I have with John Stewart sometimes because in a way, yeah. He he uses what a friend of mine calls the Rush Limbaugh defense in mm-hmm. that like he always wades in and makes serious political commentary, but then when anybody calls him on his shit, he's like, "Oh, no, I'm just an entertainer, you know? Like I'm just a comedian, <laughs> you know?" Did when you guys like, watch yeah, I, I agree comedian, with that. But you always try to make these like, you know, and I mean, I agree yeah. with I'm him in the same channel but... with Talking Muppets or Puppets or something yeah. like that. I feel like yeah. I yeah, that was his uh, hardball yeah. excuse. Like, I'm on after Crank Yankers. You can't do that to me. Yeah. Did you guys and see I the interview? Like I've heard that several times. Did you guys see the interview he did with uh, Rachel Maddow like a week or two ago? I did. Yeah. Bits I did. and pieces. It was actually very good. Like, uh, yeah. he, he made a couple points that uh, you don't hear often made. <laughs> like the one about uh, 
you know, like like the the war criminal discussion in particular. So like I guess what I'm saying is he was not he was not doing that there. Like I thought he was actually engaging in a serious conversation about serious issues like on a level playing field more or less they were talking about war criminal like he was criticizing the left for calling bush a war criminal you know and sort of saying well fine fdr was a war criminal then if we want to go that way lots of presidents were war criminals if you want to find a justification for calling them that you know the point is you know like what what does that bring to the debate what does that do what function does that serve in a conversation other than to shut down you know reasonable discussion of the issue but see that's just such classic like false balancing right like the right wing is crazy because they call obama a socialist the left wing is crazy because they call bush war criminal but it's like bush committed war like bush did acts that are defined as war crimes by yeah. existing war crimes codes right I, like see, but that is a you... factual statement as opposed to like obama is a socialist is just fina- like you can't compare those two right the, di- because... the difference with you jesse though is that i don't think you are a representative of the sort of mainstream democrats that are going around saying bush is a war criminal because you would probably admit that fdr could be considered a war criminal and kennedy could be considered a war criminal uh, am i right i mean yeah though i don't think any mainstream democrats are calling bush a war criminal um uh, but yeah i get i mean i get the point you're making i mean not not mainstream democrats like with with like titles under their names but certainly Schumer's not saying it but certainly no i get i get what you're getting at partisans who are democrats and viewing it in a sort of Republicans or war criminals were were the good guys sort of way. And there is this sort of radical, you know, the sort of from a sort of the radical critique is that, you know, look, you're all war criminals. <laughs> this is what the American this is what the United States has done over the last century. Yeah, but I wake mean, up I and mean, look at this. But I, no, I that's get what not, you're saying. But even that's when not it's... the role that that's not the role that, you know, people talking about Bush as a war criminal on MSNBC is playing. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I get that. But even even when it's that much more broader stroke, there's a difference between like using incendiary language to talk about factual things, even, you know what I mean? Like, and using incendiary language to talk about made up stuff. Like you just can't, they're qualitatively different things. And I just can't stand when they're like lumped together because then it's this, like, it's this weird worshiping of the moderate. Like, so you can automatically discount a point that is made because it's a radical point. Like, all it's saying is that, like, what he's essentially doing is saying, like, any radical assertion is crazy. Like, the real answer is some really tepid, moderate thing we can all agree on. That's the ethic of the day. Well, I agree with that's the message he gave out in his rally, and that's the message I think he gives out in most of his presences or his presentations. But I I agree with John that I was actually kind of surprised at the that interview as well maybe because he was sick because i feel like what he was saying there is not so much that the left makes you know these you know generalizations that the right does but rather these are complex issues and that whether bush is a war criminal or not is kind of a complicated issue that needs to be discussed and without drawing huge um generalizations at the end of the day you have to make a line and say did he do this or not uh but we have to get the facts out first what what exactly happened and are we are we comfortable as a country pursuing certain ends means to uh to certain ends you know because you know honestly we probably have always been committing war crimes right but we're living in an age and time where we don't want to do that anymore and so how how serious of an issue is that for us 
Um, yeah, and what happened? And, and, yeah, and I think and I think his point was that what happens is that the two party system sort of drives you into this uh, uh, state of mind where you can blame the other side for all the bad things without critically looking at your own side. And I think that's I think that's part of the point he was making in the interview, at least. Oh yeah, and I want to yeah. make it absolutely clear that I'm in no way defending the two party system nor anyone involved with it. That's true. You're for um, the one party system, right? The state does everything, right? Yeah, Isn't that you? Uh, the state will tell you what party exists. Oh, um, that's better. Yeah, it's a lot less complicated. But I think I'm. I mean, I'm not really not saying it as eloquently as I'm trying to, but. Uh, I think the part that gets me about his sort of claim, though, is just I still feel that um, it's like e- even you're right, right? Like the saying George Bush is a war criminal is a very nuanced thing, and there's there's a lot of a lot that we don't know about it, and a lot that you know WikiLeaks will probably fill in in the coming month. Um, but I, I think there's still something to saying that, like you know, just again, there's still something to his argument that is essentially like anybody who really wants to rock the boat or anybody who really disagrees a lot is kind of just a cantankerous, crazy person and you shouldn't listen to them. You know what I mean? Like there's, it's sort of a, I don't know, condescension or something about it that turns me off. I mean, not that there's not a place for civility in politics and that kind of thing, but like, I don't know. I feel like when you, when you point out like sort of any radical departure as incivility, that certainly is like biasing towards a certain viewpoint. You know what I'm saying? Well, I think I think he, I think the message that he gives out depoliticizes issues and saying, you know, the right and the left, they're, they're both wrong, and we're actually solving these problems every day, and the solutions are right there, and they're in the in the between, you know, and we just need everybody to be quiet, and we would solve the issues. But if everybody was quiet, then no issues would get solved, and you know contentious debates is part of a political process because you know if we want to move on certain social equality issues that means we have to challenge certain status the status quo in certain respects you know if you're going to have you know an overhaul of the insurance um of the medical industry or healthcare industry there's going to be some winners and losers so that's not going to be an easy debate to have so yeah we're going to have to have some nasty debates i think that's like there's a little bit of a myth making that he was i think suggesting that it's always in the middle i mean he's right we do get things done and we shouldn't use you know such stark examples to mystify it even further but i don't think the solution is well we shouldn't disagree with each other um, because if you really accept that, <laughs> then you're pretty much just giving up, and <laughs> there is no political movement for anything. Um, just you know, pay your taxes and go buy your TV at Black Friday, and that's it. That's what I do. <laughs> oh, we're using well, you, TV. Except you make your wife buy it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Because I mean, he like it did seem for a while he was beating up on the left quite a bit you know um and then like I, I noticed he's been doing these like skits about um glenn beck you know and like glenn beck is like getting even crazier you know <laughs> as time goes by and like he's getting even more popular and i was reading that like sarah palin's new tv show reality show is like the number one rated show right now it's not uh people like to watch it fell off Mac. real quick like the debut it, it, episode it, it, was big, everyone but... checked out the debut and then 60% of the people did not come back for the second episode. Okay. All right. So it was just, is this <laughs> so going to be as better. embarrassing as we think we, it's gonna, we think it's going to be? Probably not. It's just boring. We're done. 
Because I have no problem saying, you know, we need, you know, conservative viewpoints and part of the discussions of how to deal with these problems. But, you know, Sarah Palin and Glenn Beck are just a completely different element, you know, (laughs) or telling people to basically turn off their brains and uh, wish for happier days. Uh, the interesting that thing that sense. that John that is going on, and I think John Stewart does this, is uh, he's very critical of Democrats um, from a sort of from like kind of a left perspective. Actually, like, are you kidding me? Like, you really are you you are like issues like repealing "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" and renewing tax cuts for people earning under two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year like these are issues where like your public opinion is on your side and you're still too afraid to press it you know there's a lot of that um but then then they're all there is sort of the rhetoric to like the crazies on both sides and it's like well who are the crazies on both sides like uh i i kind of think ben nelson is a crazy on the democratic side right someone who will hijack healthcare so that he can sort of get his own ego stroked basically you know like that's being that's a crazy moderate. Like the idea that you can be a radical moderate in a bad way. <laughs> um, there are a lot of those. In fact, it's funny. It seems like it's always the ones who are so proud of being moderate that ends up like you know uh, you know whether it's like Joe Lieberman or whoever that end up abusing their position to try to get as much power as possible. It, you would almost think that in a two party system, the moderates would attract the the sort of real ideologues and the real power hungry you know like crazy people, right? Uh, they might if they're more successful. Am I am I going to talk radio here on this? But it, it really seems like that's you know, if you if I you, mean the, if the you, point of American politics when you get into the halls of Congress is to maintain power, right? Yeah, stay, keep or you know. the power potential. Yeah, if, you, so if you're going to face if, a challenge in the primary, you got to move right or left or whatever. If people really thought that there were legs under this whole "we're moderates" thing, people would move that. And on the left, you've seen it at the quote unquote left in the Democratic Party, you've seen it, right? Because Democrats most of them will say that they're moderates who are in line with American values and so on and so forth. With the right, the on the conservative strands, you see people, for the most part, saying, we're in line with, with American values, but that's conservatism, not liberalism or whatever you're calling a moderate. But if more moderates get, you know, if, if that's a sticking argument, then more people will announce that they're moderates. It's not going to correspond to their actions. It's just a label. Now who's the radical? I've killed like four of our... There's Papa's conversation assassin. <laughs> Seriously, I, what am I saying that's so wrong? I just... I read that WikiLeaks article you sent out about his like political philosophy in doing WikiLeaks thing, John? That was really interesting. What is his political philosophy? I think we should get into it. That's my two cents. All right. I mean, I'm willing to go there if everyone else is. Go. Essentially, the the short version of it was that, like, the way power operates, and and hold on really, Chris, quick. Like, Chris, are you cutting (laughs) something or, like, stroking your beard furtively or, like... There is That's a, what it sounds like. a regular ripping noise coming out of your... Says the guy phone. who plays games on his computer the whole time we talk. Well, <laughs> yeah, dude. There's These constantly a little click, 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 coming from Jesse's mic. Yeah, well, uh, I at least do behind my mic. I was uh, peeling an orange, my apologies. Uh, okay. So anyway, what I thought it was. The WikiLeaks guy philosophy. So essentially, he feels like um, 
power in American politics operates in the form of a conspiracy, but not conspiracy in the sense like the CIA and Cuba assassinated Castro conspiracy, but just in that power, actual power functions behind closed doors, essentially, right? This is pretty something we probably all agree to. And, and so, like, his theory is all based on, and this is going to be way butchering it, but this was a really long discussion of his theory. But essentially his theory is based on that, you know, a, a conspiracy of power runs on information, right? Like the ability to disseminate information, control information, have the real information as opposed to the information that exists outside. Um, and so to try to attack, like, a conspiracy like that on any issue, right? Like to try to release the torture photos and get the people who let the torture happen in trouble doesn't work because it's such a like large multifaceted process that you can lose any singular part of it. And it's not really a problem, but because it's all based on like how the information flow works, if you just continually release its information, then the conspiracy itself can't trust its own information and starts to close itself down. Um, and it's really kind of like a, if, if you're a sociologist, it's very much like a social networks analysis of like the strong and weak connectors between parties. And if you can get everybody to start doubting those connectors, then they have to start cutting down to only the really strong connectors. Uh, and then things start to fall apart. And actually, I'm really struck at how much it sort of mirrors the FBI's um, plan for dealing with left militant groups in the late 60s, essentially, like, if you just keep releasing information of theirs, whether it's true or not or good or bad it starts to make the people in the conspiracy really paranoid of one another and not trusting the information and then when they don't trust information which is it's like one sort of lifeblood then the whole thing falls apart and so essentially he's trying to choke the conspiratorial american government off at it's like lifeblood so it will fall apart and give way to this new open society of sharing and believing and that's obviously way 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 oversimplifying it but i was struck at how sort of I mean, I didn't know the guy was necessarily that smart, but it was a really good sort of classic, like, sociology of social networks kind of analysis of how, like, government power works. So he kind of wants to destabilize the kind of structural networks of how information flows um, go between institutions, institutions that he feels are kind of, whether explicit or intentional or not, have become too powerful and you know, sinister in its practices. Yeah, essentially. And I mean, yeah, yeah, I think that's a pretty good summation of it. And the idea that being like, just by disrupt, making it so they can't trust the information flow makes it so they can't exercise their power because their power is all based on the ability to have the right information, disseminate the information they want disseminated versus don't want disseminated and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's interesting because I was... I mean, I haven't been following this story too much, but the little bits and pieces I get, I, I have been thinking like, wow, oh, I wonder if there's just this culture of just, I know this information will never get out, so I'm going to be a little bit more brazen about <laughs> my assessment of this, or even more, you know, um, ambitious about what we can do and who can we work with, you know, um, that if there was this fear of transparency, that this information could always be found out, um, that it might actually shape not only people's communication style, but also their planning of really bad stuff. Like I'm always shocked by like when, you know, some email memo sent by a, a company comes out saying that, Oh yeah, we you know we want to rip off people and they're, or, you know, uh, yeah. do some kind of a 
trick to uh, you know defraud people from their mortgages or something ridiculous. You know, you're like, why did they write that memo? Uh, <laughs> you know, why would they? Well, that's. I mean, that's actually exactly his point because his point is that you know if like obviously just like the bank does that or the government will do that too, write these like sort of horrible memos that, you know, if people found out would really upset people. And his point is, that's like the point of information control, right? So that people don't find out about this and aren't really resistant to it. And so the point of this article that was commenting on his theory was saying, right, if you look at this round of leaks, there's really not that much interesting in there. There's really nothing shocking or like, essentially all they are is like, look, the government does stuff that it says it doesn't actually do. You know, the kind of stuff that, like, if you've ever watched the news, like, you know goes on. But the point is that, like, if you continue to lay that process bare and just continually point out, like, look, they're doing completely opposite of what they said they're going to do or say they ever do or that kind of thing, then it kills their ability to, like, plan these kind of things. Because you can't plan secret activities without a continuous source of secret information, right? So if you just keep leaking the secret information, it doesn't matter what the information is. It just matters that it's not secret anymore. No, that's interesting. Because I think what would happen is that now it's relationships, like face-to-face interactions would be very important to implement anything that you don't want other people to know. But that type of face-to-face interaction is not conducive yeah it's really difficult to do yeah and that's the point like you reduce the his whole point is like by leaking these even relatively unimportant documents you reduce the ability to do secret things dramatically like only to -to face-to-face which is pretty impractical yeah that makes sense see I, i mean i think let's let's unpack this a little bit because you were saying sort of the philosophy was you can't just focus on individual events right so we would all agree that first of all uh the WikiLeaks guy didn't like, you know, sneak into some government building and steal this stuff. Someone with access leaked it to him, yeah. right? I mean, that's important because of all the morons who are going around saying we should like assassinate the guy. Like, he actually <laughs> didn't commit a crime, right? It's it's legal to publish some, you know, like that's I'm pretty sure he's he's actually on safe ground here. Um whatever, you know, escalation of punishments the right wing has going on for him may say, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um so that's one thing, but it gets more complicated because like, okay, so I can see this. So, you know, leaking documents, uh, internal CIA documents sort of discussing the sort of illegal torture or torture, right? You don't need to add illegal to it. Yeah. Torture of, uh, <laughs> um, of, you As know, to detainees the friendly torture, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, um, is this kosher what we're doing? I don't know. Let's check. <laughs> uh, but like, we can all look at that and say, yeah, like that's that's a valuable function where of of like a, a something like this. But then, what this is is diplomatic communication, right? And you can think of all sorts of examples of where you know if I if we've got a I don't know a, a, a diplomat in China who's working with a human rights group in China, and he has informants who are you know, telling him about, uh, you know, what's going on there on the ground that would personally endanger that informant. And it's a cause that we should, we generally would all agree we should support, right? And should that, you know, uh, um, operative or whatever not be able to have a private conversation with people in Washington? Like, is that something that we're saying, yeah, we actually just shouldn't allow that, you know? Or is that a level of, I mean, is that, is that not allowable? It seems like something that you'd, you'd probably want, right? And in fact, that's the problem with this, is that targeting diplomats are exactly, you know, diplomat, that, that diplomatic stuff is exactly what 
um, people sort of who don't want <laughs> sort of uh, pure military force as being the predominant way of the U.S. interacting with the world being the, the way to do things is precisely yeah, I, through I this think, kind of stuff. Yeah, I would, but oh, I don't think it's good. Uh, sorry, I was going to say I. I don't know his philosophy, but I would imagine that it's not about instant transparency to all of the dealings that a government does. But if there is this fear that eventually what you're doing will get out, you know, in a time in time sensitive way, that everything that you do will come out eventually in two years, um, that that type of transparency is not so much of black and white that. You know, if if you have to do some diplomatic maneuvering with some country that is not so. Up, you know, a little bit shady in some of their dealings, you know. But if that comes out in two years, you know, and it's a little bit embarrassing, that's one thing. But if it's like we can never let this out, you know, the American people won't stand for the fact that we're torturing massive amounts of people. You know, that's I feel like that just if what Jesse described as his strategy, I feel like it's just kind of changing the spectrum of what is acceptable and not. Yeah, it's not saying that government shouldn't be you know, can can be shady at times. I was going to say, I mean, it's kind of like, I don't mean to totally, I don't like necessarily 100% agree with this guy. I just finally read this big long article about his theory that John should probably post to the webpage um, when we put this up because people may be interested in it. I think but, someone else sent this to you, so you should send it to me. <laughs> uh, you sent it out, man. <laughs> I, I thought I sent something else out, but anyway. <laughs> anyway, I'll dig it up. But the point is, it, I, I'm not necessarily defending it. I was just really fascinated by it because it was really interesting, and he's clearly like put a lot of thought into it. Um, but yeah, the point was, he's not like trying to replace like the United States government, or he's not like trying to cause like a revolution in the name of something other than just like, creating a new world in which openness is like a given part of it. And I think kind of going along with Arturo said, and to kind of address what John said, I think, I mean, I don't think even he would argue there's like no place ever for secrecy. I think it's kind of like the World War II argument that comes, like when people are opposed to like, say the Iraq war, people are like, well, what would you have done about Hitler? And, you know, and you're like, well, that's, you know, this isn't about Hitler, right? This is about, like, a war that clearly doesn't need to be fought. Just kind of like with these documents, too, um, oh, but I, there has been though. some criticism of, of not... them, and they're probably open. But, I mean, like, you can't use the fact that the government may need secrecy someday as an argument against, like, yeah. exposing but that's But that's exactly not the argument you said he was making, which is that you can't discriminate about the case and the <clears throat> specific... Yeah, you know, that's true. I mean, these are diplomatic cables, right? These aren't evidence of torture at guantanamo yeah. right so this is this is that's that's not the point that he was making i think yeah no that's, that's fair i mean i'm you know going off topic here and not saying that i necessarily agree with everything <laughs> but that's a fair criticism of his points yeah you know do you guys know the um political science his name is Stephen lipsky who wrote this book called um the street level bureaucrat um Street level I think I've bureaucracy heard of it, not, dilemmas. Right. I was thinking about this issue of transparency and, and how that would like possibly paralyze the, the government. You know, if 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 nobody could have these secret conversations, and I was thinking uh, about his framework because he makes this argument that, like, he makes it about really the public policy, like public sector jobs. That you know, public policy is something that is deliberated and uh, negotiated in a very public forum and there's all sorts of political forces that dictate a certain policy and a certain program but 
it's really on the street level bureaucrat, whether it's a case manager or a director of a program, to make sense of that democratically agreed upon policy about what it actually means on the ground. And often on the ground, it's, situations are much more complex and fuzzy than the public policy that's been agreed upon by you know this political process. And so street-level bureaucrats have to kind of have this period where they're trying out several, several different things under the rubric of this public policy that's been passed. Um, and I think that some of those times they're clearly violating the spirit of the law that was passed you know but they're trying you know they're trying to apply the rules um but it's just very difficult and i think that like that's the that's a point where i think um if every communication was put out on the internet it would make government's job to implement public policy or foreign policy very difficult um because as soon as the government started doing something, it would be very clear that, you know, well, this isn't exactly what we agreed upon. Um, and, you know, I mean, he makes this case that, like, there's there's this kind of feedback loop that eventually street bureaucrats need to, like, complain and say, this policy doesn't make sense. We're trying to make it work. But, you know, you guys had no idea what you were talking about when you implemented it. And then, the you know, the senators and street rep- or representatives go come back and say, well, that, that doesn't matter. You make it work somehow. This is what the public wants. So I think, you know, he, he, he just kind of highlights that it's much messier on the ground than, than we ever know. Uh, and I, I wonder if, like, that's one of, you know, John, when you brought up this issue about, like, don't we want the ability of what I would imagine street-level bureaucrats to have conversations that aren't necessarily public, <laughs> you know, with people back home and, and kind of having conversation that, like, you know, I know we're supposed to be pursuing this policy with Afghanistan, but this guy's nuts, you know, but he's he's kind of crazy and he's kind of mentally ill, but he's our best bet. Supposedly, you say we have to work with him. Well, if we're going to work with him, this is what it means. But also, and, I mean, but that kind of thing, isn't that something the public has the right to know? Like, are, you know, like, I mean, even though I could see strategically why you might want that to be secret, like, since we are spending, you know, however many trillions of dollars and, and all these things on that, like, isn't that the kind of thing the public has the right to know? You know what I mean? Like I get that yeah, it makes a that work level harder, do. but yeah, no, I think in a, in a, a true democracy, yeah, that work is hard. Um, but I think there's that's why I think there's like a time sensitive period where there's like I think periods of communications that might be embarrassing to acknowledge eventually, but nobody loses their job. Versus like, whoa, you're really like sponsoring terrorism in a different state, you know, like uh, Karzai is doing all sorts of evil things um and we you know the public won't really accept this as opposed to karzai is really corrupt <laughs> and this is going to be an embarrassment for a while but we can live with it for the time being you I think, know yeah i think that's the point i was getting at when you were talking about this being his uh you know the wiki i forget his name Assange. how do you say it assange assange i think you know you were talking about it being a sociological way of thinking about it and actually, I think that's kind of fitting because sociologists tend to forget that people are ultimately doing these things. And and that's mm-hmm. the thing is that people need to build relationships on trust. And if you have no ability to have any sort of privacy, you can't establish trust, you know, um, because that's just the way people are, whether you love it or hate it. And yes, the risk there, the continuum of, you know, examples there range from 
oh my god, this guy's a horrible mass murderer, let's tell everyone back home he's a saint, to, um, you know, you know, we have doubts about how well this strategy is going to work, but it's a, it's our best option, so let's just, you know, this is our public stance. Like, there's a continuum there, but anytime you have people that actually have to implement these things, you know, and real humans whose can get whose egos can get bruised and who can turn on one another and not trust one another because you can't have even a, the, the, the most private of conversations within your own sort of uh, within your own government or within your own side or whatever, like that stuff that that can be very damaging too. I mean, I guess that's the point I'm trying to get. I don't I don't know if that's it's complicated, though. I completely defend the WikiLeaks guy's right to do what he does, though. And I think more good than bad could come of, you know, the the purpose they're serving. And the fact is, if WikiLeaks went away, well, you know, the, the internet's still there. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it just so happens that WikiLeaks is doing it now. It's not like if you shut them down, this isn't still going to be an issue in five, ten years that's going to radically change the way diplomacy and government communication happens. Because that's that's what's going to happen. No, shutting down one site is not going to change that. My turn, Chris. That's true. (laughs) Sometimes you have to break a few diplomacy eggs to make a WikiLeaks omelet. (laughs) 